Welcome back to Dylan Friends. This week on the show, the voice of commentary, Brian Taylor. I genuinely love BT. I love what he's about. I love listening to him call. He's an awesome guy. It was a really, really interesting episode. I loved it. Basically, chat about his story, um, you know, growing up in WA, moving over to, to Melbourne at 16 years of age, which is incredible. It just doesn't happen anymore. Um, getting thrown into the AFL system, having a great career at that. But there's so many things to his career that we had to, um, you know, sort of brush over a few things, but then really get into the bulk of the story. Talked about, you know, him leaving the game, getting into the media, um, such a long road into it. I think, you know, you can look after, look at people now and you think, geez, you know, they've gone straight out of footy, straight into commentary. But for BT, it really wasn't like that. He had a 10-year apprenticeship, a 10-year apprenticeship working on, um, you know, small radio stations, doing uh, basketball commentary, doing um, Eastern Footy League commentary. Um, and he basically had to go and refine his craft and get his opportunity uh, at the highest level, um, you know, commentating AFL, which is absolutely credit to himself. He speaks about working with Bruce, working with um, heaps of other, his team and how important a team is around commentary, the roles that they play. He speaks about his favourite moments in the game. And we also spoke about the perception of BT versus Brian Taylor, like what we see him as on a Friday, Saturday night um, versus, you know, who he actually is and what he gets up to um, when he's away from footy, living down at Lawn and, um, you know, working in the shed, hanging out with his dog, hanging out with his family and sitting on the beach. So love this chat with BT. I really, really think you'll all enjoy this one. Um, and, yeah, he's a great man, so make sure you check it out. Hi, fam. It's Dylan's mum, Deborah. This is Dylan Friends. He's like, you can embarrass yourself? And I was like, bro, do you want me to do all seven verses? Bit arrogant. Didn't know all yeah. seven. <laughs> I've been in a bad team for 10 years, and we got a chance to do something pretty special this year. All you can do is put your hand up and say you're wrong. Banter is a way that guys connect, a way that we can kind of play it safe with someone until we get to know them. I try to fix people sometimes. I'm like, Dan, stop doing that. Just listen. And you stack on top of that the habit of not taking your phone when you take your dog. It's easy. They had no other way to get out of the cave, and we either turn our backs on them, in which case they're going to die, or we give this crazy idea a go. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. Brian Taylor. Dill, how are you? Good, mate. How are you? Very well, thank you. Honour to have you in the studio. Absolute honour. What am I doing here? I've got no <laughs> idea why I'm here. <laughs> this is so good. <laughs> I, so I remember good. you vaguely, yeah. uh, Ivanhoe Grammar Boy, and yes. of course my kids all went to Assumption. Yeah. And I remember, the thing I remember about you is the is the childhood prodigy, you know, with Jim, Jimmy and all that sort of thing, but you were always wrapped in cotton wool. You never played. Yeah. Every time you played Assumption... Dylan Buckley, late scratching, well, cotton that, wool, doesn't want to play. No, no, not at all. Do you know, no, that's there, true. there was a day, what's that um, oval called up at Assumption? Well, it's called the Oval. Is that called the Oval, is it? Is there a name for uh, it? Oh, there is a name for it. I think they renamed now. it the Dylan Buckley Oval because I literally tore it to shreds one day when I was up there. Well, it was I, it's funny, I never saw you play yeah. up there. You were always a late withdrawal, but anyway. <laughs> well, actually, funny story, it isn't so funny. My last game I played for school footy was against Assumption at Ivanhoe. And in the first quarter, I had this bloke come behind me, push me in the back in midair, and you know what it's like being a big key forward. When you get pushed in the midair, you lose your balance. Are you a big key forward? I right? was that day. And I came down, broke my ankle both sides. Like, right. just went bang, bang. It was pretty much the demise from there. Never never <laughs> quite never quite got back to that that side. What was it like on your school footy? What, what was that like playing, particularly year 12? Was it the absolute year where you sorted out your friends and who they were and stuff? I loved I love school footy and I think I lived in that moment of going like, I'm never going to play with mates again, like my mates. Because being at Ivanhoe, you'd know this um, assumption, incredible football school, footy factory as you'd say, they're your words, not yeah. mine. Ivanhoe was quite the opposite. Like no scholarships given out. Don't care about footy. Don't care about footy. I was only playing my team that played TAC Cup. So they were literally just my mates that right. played footy. If you were yeah. just a friend, you'd, you'd play the game. So I, I loved it. But definitely some of the fondest memories. Mm. 
Good days. You grew up in Mandra. I did. So I went to a very different schooling in the education. So I was at Pinjarra High and that was like, you know, outback sort of school, you know, 400 kids, you know, had a fight every playtime and recess time and someone wanted to fight you. And, you know, I remember this guy, Scott Bell, his name was. I don't know what the <laughs> hell he's doing now. His dad was a brickie and the family were tough and... You know, you'd you'd get out at recess and he'd challenge to fight you because, you know, you were assuming a little bit of, um, you know, people starting to like you because of whatever. And so he'd want to knock you down a bit. (laughs) Righto, get the the troops out and everyone would form a ring around you at recess and you'd punch the shit out of each other and away you go. It was funny. I I reckon I had over my career at school, I reckon I had about ten fights over the period. Yeah, it was weird. Like You wouldn't see a fight in the the playground now. It doesn't happen these days. No, it was big. It was big. It was a huge school event. Somehow the teachers never knew that there was a fight on the bottom oval, you know. Do you you think that's like even on that, um, I don't want to get into like back in my day, but like do you think that's a good thing that there's no fights anymore? Do you think it teaches you something? Because I think like I look back now going on the train, the train station used to be the spot where I was like genuinely scared to go to. And I used to go, fuck, I don't want to go to the train station. I don't want to go. And my old man used to say, you fucking go to the train station. Like, you have to go. Don't <laughs> avoid, like, conflict. And it t- now I look back and go, I'm fucking glad I just manned up and went. Like, and didn't, you know, nothing even happened, but I just rocked up and didn't shirk it. Yeah. I, I think the resilience thing, I think, mm. you know, that's what it teaches you to, to, to get back up and to go again. And I look at all my kids and I think if I could put one thing into them, it would be resilience. Mm. Um, and and to you know get a knock back at when you go for, for for a job or whatever it is you know go again go just keep going and don't be disheartened by it so I just think that is one of many many ingredients along the way in my era where you're able to build that resilience which is I think something fundamentally that is lacked in society today. Moving from WA to Victoria again, resilience building, like back then no sort of like social media, no following, yeah. you had to move it. How old were you when you moved over? I was 16, so 16. it was a really big deal. You've just been through that yourself and many others in the football world have been through it. So, you know, shifting from a country town in Western Australia had never really left the state other than national championships in Adelaide the, the previous year. You know, leave all my friends who just meant everything to me. You know, my family, my youngest sister had just been born when... When I left, so I never really, I never really, uh, other than I think she was maybe one or two when I left, so I never really knew my younger sister, and it's been sort of catch up time ever since. So to leave all that behind to go to this foreign country called Victoria was a bloody weird thing, and then to be billeted out with a, a an elderly lady in South Yarra in Hawkesburn. Um, I arrived on a Friday. I was at work on Monday as a plumber in Paran. I remember my very first job when I arrived at 7am and this guy was a tough cookie, you know, Bob Gill his name was and he was a racing car driver and a plumber and a former Richmond Reserves player and he was just tough. And he said, jump in that car there with that guy. You're off at 7am, you're off to do a sewerage blockage in St Kilda Road. And I went to went down to St Kilda Road with this guy I'd never met before and, you know, it was sort of, it was just, you know, getting lighter 
and there were all these coloured lights in this big block of red flats in St Kilda Road. And I'm thinking, Jesus, there's been a party on here. This is incredible. We're going to the party. Yeah. You know, it's just finishing. There's all these women sort of leaving. And I'm thinking, Jesus, they're scantily dressed. I mean, what the hell is going on here? I'd never heard of a massage parlour before. This is a block of 50 massage parlours. And there was a sewer blockage there, right? And they took me out to the pit out, out the back in the car park. It was the not the patron's car park, but the worker's car park. And all the workers are leaving at this time of the morning, 7 in the morning, 7.15, and uh, he said, get down that shaft there. The shaft was about 15 foot deep. Climb down the ladder into the shaft. He said, shove the sewer router up the pipe, and when you hear the gurgling, get the hell out of there because it's going to fl- – anyway, I, I, I didn't get out. I was I didn't realise it was going to flood so quickly, and I was up to my neck in the night's takings, and um, <laughs> he hosed me off, refused to take me back to work in the car. He said, there's a taxi. You go back to work in the taxi. So that was my very first job as a 16-year-old kid out of country – Western Australia, never left the state, and here I am bathing in in this absolute sewage. Yeah, it was a it was that's a, a fair induction weird, into it was and it was scary, you know. Like I'd never been. I, I come straight from school. I didn't even finish year twelve, and so to be in the workforce like three days after you arrive in a strange place was and living with strange people was bloody weird. Forgive me for this as well. This is very sh- like. Stupid question, but how are you communicating back home at that stage? Is it just like landlines? or Yeah, just landlines. So no mobile phones at that yeah. stage, hadn't been invented. So it was all landlines. And I remember Noel Judkins who, who recruited me, you may remember him, he's mm-hmm. a great recruiter for Richmond, Essendon, and I think he went on to Collingwood as well. And uh, he recruited me and I used to go to his office. Every time I'd go to training, I'd go to his office. I'd spend an hour on the phone back to Western Australia because I knew it was costing an absolute fortune. <laughs> and I remember him telling me at one stage his bill was about $9,000. It was about $6,000 more than it should be. And that was probably me on the phone because I had a girlfriend back in Western Australia as well. And, you know, it was, it was full on. Yeah. Far out. What, what's the memories of first um, getting to Richmond Footy Club per se as a player? Like what was it like walking down the rooms at that stage? Because it was a good team. Yeah, good team. Come off a couple of really good eras that, and they were very, very well known. Like Kevin Sheedy picked me up at the airport. The day I arrived, wow. here's this guy. Was, in Western Australia, all we knew about football over here was what we saw on the Winners, which was a program on the ABC, mm-hmm. an hour's highlights basically of the VFL. And it was just everywhere you looked, it was just greatness. And you go, you know, there were all these incredible players. And Kevin Sheedy was a 250-game player, four-time premiership player at that stage. Like you just you go, wow. And then he's at the airport to pick you up. And I'm jumping in the car with Kevin Sheedy. And I'm going for my first night to live with Kevin Sheedy. This is bizarre. This great guy that I've seen on TV. And you know how you're influenced by those people that you see on TV. And, and it was just... It was just an absolutely amazing, amazing start. And I, the thing I probably remember most about Richmond is, is um, everyone that walked in the door was a great name that you knew. There was mm. someone famous each way you looked. And uh, and I think the togetherness of the place, they had a lot of past players that used to come down. They had this guy called Graham Richmond who was like the administrator, power broker, hatchet man, also cut your head off as quick as look at you. Um, so it was a great place to be amongst uh, a lot of very, very tough and seasoned campaigners. How would you, for someone who didn't see you play live at the game in the flesh, how would you describe yourself as a player? Um, I, I was just I was just there to make up the numbers, really. Probably, um, you that's know, not true. I I had a slow start, um, and you know, I was a I was a good junior player in Western Australia, but I never knew whether I could play at this level. So there was always that question mark. I guess 
others thought I probably could, but yeah, it was you know you're leading goal kicker two years in a row. Yeah, but bringing young kids in, sixteen year old kids into a footy club was a strange thing back, back there. Then, yeah. uh, particularly the only other sixteen year old that had ever left the state of Western Australia was the guy by the name of Steve McCann, who yeah. played for North Melbourne, played in a couple of premierships there. Um, he was, he and I were the only two at that stage that had left Western Australia as such young kids. Every other person that come to play in the VFL was a seasoned waffle performer or sandfall performer. So it was it was a little bit different to have a young kid, and they weren't quite sure whether he was going to develop into what they thought he was but would be. It was a huge risk for him. Yeah, well, the, the six. So there's Tim Watson. Obviously, was the youngest I think to ever mm-hmm. play. But back then, like there was always sort of young kids playing around. Which to think now that you know me at sixteen running around with. Season veteran. It's just silly to think that so, could even so happen. Why is the why is the limit eighteen? I don't quite get. Would you think it should be lower as well? Well, I just or? think everyone matures at different ages. Yeah, and so some kids like Tim Watson was ready to play when he was sixteen. Yeah, some kids aren't ready to play until they're twenty-one. So I, I just wonder why we have this cut-off age. I wonder why we don't take them when they're ready to play. I think there should be definitely like academies. I I feel there's players that were better players at like 17 than they were at 18 and 19. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting how True. it works. And it is because you're always you're always at footy clubs and junior footy clubs and there might be this young kid that's an absolute gum and the parents think, well, he, naturally they think, well, he should go on and play at the very top level because mm-hmm. he's now the best player in this kid's team here. He's the best player in the competition but he's already matured. Yeah. He's already playing the best he can. There's no improvement. There's no, yeah. There's no improvement left. I've always amazed by recruiters how they know what improvements left. I don't think they do. I think, I think they I, guess too. I reckon it's a massive guess. I think without being offensive to like recruiters, I think it's the biggest like load of bullshit. You've it ever, is, yeah, I it agree. really is. Um, no, I agree. I would agree with that. I would say that um, recruiters. I reckon seventy percent of their work is guesswork. It's already done yeah. for you, really. The last picks are the ones that are, are hard to get. But like you say, for example, a player that is um is already developed and they come through. That was the the tag that Luke Parker got. You know, he was absolutely and still to this day one of the one of the game's best players at the moment. You'd yeah. say he's in the in in that area. He got picked to pick forty because they thought he's already capped. He's not going to be any right. better. And all these other guys, the athletic guys, come through in, in See, front so of him. So it's still, true. it's all coming around. It's yeah. still coming. Yeah. It's so really even your, if you think you're playing the best at junior level, that could be good enough to play. Definitely now. I, I feel like now we're getting to a stage where actual footballers are getting picked up again. Like you look at, um, you know, Jai Newcomb yeah. from the VFL, yeah. like from Hawthorne. Like he wasn't getting a game because they probably thought he was capped. Yeah. But he's coming now. He's probably going to be the rising star. Yeah. No, that that's a good sign. And th- and this whole. Evolution of football does this all the time. You've only probably seen one or two evolutions yeah. so far, but this has been going on for 50 years where, you know, for, for, for one decade it's, you know, Athletes. we've got to have the athlete. Yeah. For the next decade we've got to have the the IQ, uh, you know, and it just keeps going around in circles mm. and they keep tripping over and oh. saying, try and reinvent the wheel. It's all been done. Yeah, it's good that we've debunked that today. Ah, oh, bloody recruiters and that. They're overpaid. <laughs> Uh, they're, they're absolute wankers, I reckon. <laughs> they really are. No, there's plenty of good ones out there, definitely. Hey, so 1982, playing mm. some good footy, the leading goal kicker, and don't get picked for the grand final team. Mm. How hard was that? Yeah, that was that was probably a bit of a low light. But playing at Richmond, you just thought you were going to play in a grand final every, every second year. year, so it didn't yeah. matter. How hey, old were you at that time? Uh, 82, I would have been 19, I reckon. Yeah. So and at that time as well, you think I've nineteen. I've got so long left. Yeah, find another one. You've got so long left, and Richmond always play in grand finals. So don't worry, there'll be another one. Well, guess what? After nineteen eighty two, the next one was two thousand seventeen. 
So, you know, it was it was quite bizarre. I remember I got hurt in the last game of the year, um, hurt my knee, and Steve Perry, our then full back, also got hurt in the last game of the year. So the full back and full forward both out for the first final, which we won. And um, and then we because we went straight into the grand final, we had the week off before the grand final. They played a practice match at, at Punt Road against each other. And to prove myself, I had to play in that practice match. And, and I did. And I kicked some goals against the guy that was going to be the fullback and thought, oh, well, I'll be right, given the fact that I had such a good year and proved my fitness. And um, didn't get picked. There was obviously something there they thought that was not right in terms of my medical um, situation. What was the injury? I had a knee injury. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, ended up being a posterior cruciate uh, issue that I had. So um, I missed out because of that. My parents had flown over in those oh. days, secrecy around football. This is the other big thing in football. Everything's a fucking secret. Everything is a secret. Mm. Like, why? Why is football so secretive? Why is Damien Hardwick so secretive about the ins and outs of the Richmond football? You know, IP. What is IP? <laughs> Give me a break. I, what, what is wrong with these people? Everyone in the world knows what's going on and... I just think, like, when Lee Matthews was our coach at Collingwood, you weren't allowed to speak or say anything to anyone. Mm. And his, he would say, if you have to speak to the media, tell them lies. Never tell them the truth. And so that's the way we were brought up and that's the way... And I, I, I'm still yet to work out I can't work why. Out. Why can't I tell the truth to the media that I'm struggling with my game at the moment and I hope to get back on track soon? Why is that such a big blow? But haven't we seen as well when people do it, we end up loving them because they're authentic, where it's actually the real person. You see, like I, someone I think worked out the media, and not say worked out, but just did something with himself and I love them for it, is Nathan Buckley Yeah. towards the end of his career. Like he went from probably what you were saying, like hating, not hating the media, I can't speak for him because I don't know his story, but he went to someone that was a bit standoffish to then just being like open, honest, and just told what he, what he thought. Yeah. You can win people over quickly if you if you're just open and honest. It's because yeah. it's, it's so far and few between in our game. I'm always I'm always amazed by the secrecy surrounding football. I'm never quite sure it's it's a game. It's not you know intelligence gathering mm. for you know defence of Australia. It's football. Yeah. And uh, you know that player plays on that player, and in the end, nothing else matters. We we used to have uh, injury update, and it's like just say a player would miss with a hamstring. They'd put down they're missing with a calf. Yeah. And I was like, I don't know why. why. That is relevant at all. It, it actually makes no sense that they're missing with a hand. Well, the old or a famous calf. one about, you know, got the left shoulder injury, but they taped the right shoulder. I mean. That was actually smart, though. I, I didn't <laughs> mind that one for, um, for Lin Jong. Yeah. Hey, I want to fast forward because there's so much to get through in your story. Um, how did you find transition out of football? Um, I, I found it really easy because I yeah. knew where I wanted to go. You know, I was a plumber yeah. uh, in the time that I played footy. And I, I as a result, knew what I wanted to do. And in this world of secrecy, it was strange because I had to prove to people in the media world that I could, number one, talk and communicate and would be okay for whatever program they saw me on. So whenever there was an interview offered in a footy club, I would always put up my hands, which a lot of the teammates looked at me and thought I was a bit of a dick for doing that. Mm. And the coaches certainly looked and said, well, you know, hang on, we don't want him to say anything. Why is he speaking to the media? But I had to prove that I could do this. So mm. I accepted every invitation there was to be involved in the media so that I could prove that I could handle that situation because that's what I wanted to do for a job. So I reckon I realised that about two or three years before the end of my career. Yeah. 
and so started accepting these invitations to do these things and and being a full forward at the time you, you know you got a lot of them because that was one of the main focuses of each team was the full forward so I had a lot of opportunities and I got no doubt because I didn't have a great career I only played a, a few games of footy um and I hadn't won a Brownlow or a Premiership or any of those little trinkets that help you get into these positions, I had to get there on the basis that I could actually do the job. Yeah, and that's what I think I love about your sort of journey outside of footy from meeting. I, I must admit, I didn't know this till we, you know, we did the podcast and started doing a bit of research, but it wasn't really like a, you finish footy, here's your, here's your ticket, like one-way ticket to the media calling no. you know, the commentary. There was, it's a, it was like a roller coaster of yeah. trend. You had to really prove yourself. You're doing basketball so at some stage, yep. you're doing some Eastern Footy League yep. commentary stuff. Like, talk us through how hard it was to actually sort of get in, how much work you had to do um, to actually get to where you were. First of all, you had to get on the radio or the TV yeah. and in any show. So before you even thought about being a commentator, that was the first step to actually get in the door. And I did this program with... Um, with uh, Sam Kekovich, Adrian Gallagher, and there was one other I forget, excuse me for that, but it was 5.30 on a Saturday morning live. Wow. It was called The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. It was on 3UZ and it was just got, you know, a bunch of guys talking crap and, um, and so I got invited to do that. The trouble was I was still playing and it was 5.30 on Saturday morning game day. And I thought, oh, shit, how am I going to... So I went to the club and I, I went and said, oh, look, I've got to do this. But, you know, it's pre-recorded the day before and they just played it at 5.30 on... <laughs> it wasn't pre-recorded. I was getting up doing it live, so I told a little bit of a lie there. But that was, the, that was the first way in and then to prove that you could talk on those shows. And I had this incredible young producer who's now the head of Fox Cricket, Matty Weiss. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, his dad was the doctor at Richmond. That's how I knew him. And I said, Maddie, would you like to come and produce my show? Because I, you know, got my own show at Three UZ, at, you know, but it was it was on every morning at five thirty before Leon Wigger's show. And and so what that what Maddie worked out was as a young kid that that worked perfectly with the US Times for athletes over there. So he went and got he would make it his target. He'd get one per week. He'd go and get Carl Lewis wow. when he was absolutely the hottest athlete in the world. He would go and get Charlie Francis, the coach of Ben Johnson, who put the drugs in and won the 100 at the Olympic Games. He would go and get Flojo, the best female sprinter in the world. He'd go and get Evander Holyfield, the world heavyweight champion, or George Foreman, the other world heavyweight champion. He'd go and get all these incredible athletes. And people were wondering what the hell was going on, but he was just so persistent and uh, he, had ways, he had ways of getting him. In the end, everyone heard about it, including Bruce McAvaney. And basically, Matty became Bruce McAmaney's right-hand man for wow. you know the next twenty years as a result of his efforts on my show to to get these people. So that was the sort of start. Then I worked with community radio. So Collingwood, no one would probably remember it's not even Collingwood supporters, but they were broadcast on this community radio station. I think it was called Three CR, or I may be wrong. It may have been another community radio station. Worked with Harry Beitzel, the great Harry Beitzel, who was one of the great commentators in the history of our game. And we just did Collingwood games. And I don't think there was anyone listening. Might have been 100 people listening, I reckon. But what a great opportunity that was to make mistakes and yeah. get it wrong and no one really hear, hear you, so you weren't out the door. And I also worked on a um, university radio station, 6NR, over in Western Australia, Curtin University. Once again, it was for when West Coast were playing over here, their games would be broadcast back to this university radio station. No one would be listening, maybe 500 people max. So I had a great opportunity and one day I was just, I was a special comments guy and the commentator said to me, he said, would you like to have a call? I said, what now? 
He said, yeah. He said, just do little tiny bits and I'll guide you through it. In the middle of the game, I'm all of a sudden go from special comments to calling the game. Yeah. It was like absolutely fantastic. And his, his advice was so good and I would give this advice to any commentator. Just do a 20-second little call and you won't get tongue-tied and you won't get in a spot where you can't get out of and that was the way that I learned that was where I started and I, I guess my big opportunity came a couple of years after I retired when um, Triple M was formed and they were putting together a team and I was a foundation member yep. of that team along with Eddie Maguire and Steve Quartermain and David Rhys-Jones and you know, Ricky Nixon was involved and you know, a host of others and uh, that's where I got the opportunity but it still took 10 years at the Triple M level for anyone to recognise that I could call footy and for anyone to recognise that I was any good at all. And um, it, that was amazing because I was working alongside two guys that were already cemented in, in the minds of many people that were listening in Quartermain and Eddie Maguire. So it was always going to be hard to bust the door down when they were in front of it. I love, I really love what you said about like it took 10 years because we spoke to Howie a while ago and he was saying the exact same thing around how much work you had to put in behind the scenes you know he was like carrying cables like slowly Mm. get this time to make his call but in saying that it was the best thing that ever happened because when he got his opportunity he was ready to take it and i think like we can get caught up and especially younger people now like you know i was in this boat too you want everything straight away like you want to come in you want to be the person you want to be calling but without all that experience if you get in there and you fuck it up you're done well look at you you're the boss of this podcast you don't answer to anyone you're young (laughs) i mean what what is but i I actually started this i couldn't get on radio and it was nearly the, the point where I, I was doing this as practice and it was exactly what you would do. Like I couldn't get on any radio stations, couldn't do anything. I was like, well, fuck, I'll just start a podcast and practice, use it as like a almost like a little resume so that if it ever came calling, I could do it. But 150 apps later, it, it has just been practice. And, it's, it's and, and that's the same with the footy. Like the 10 years that I had, I reckon as a commentator, you need 10 years. This is why I'm amazed because... There's been people come in recently to our game that have called no games outside. There's a straight into the – and I go, hang on a minute. I think you need 10 years because what it is, it's about building the vocab, the footy vocab. In a game of footy, the same thing happens all the time. Someone kicks it, someone handballs it, someone marks it. How can you best describe those three skills in a multitude of different ways and make it sound interesting? And that's the key. And I reckon you only get that, the really good commentators only get that from time in the game where they build their repertoire Mm. um, and their footy vocab, their slang, um, to a point where they can pull out stuff that they don't use all the time and therefore they don't become boring. And nothing shits me more than when I hear other young commentators using other commentators' lines and phrases. It's a really weird thing when you hear that and I think... Jesus, that's you know that's just because that person hasn't done the apprenticeship, hasn't done enough to form their own vocab in football. It's a really important part of it. Who did you learn most from in sound? Like who sort of took you mm. under their wing, or who was someone that not even you were just there and going, "Fuck, I can learn a lot from this person." Probably Eddie Maguire was probably one. There was a guy by the name of Smokey Dawson, a really old fella, who taught me the A, Bs, and Cs of football calling. Yeah. You know, and, um, you know, the, the three W's on radio was really appropriate. You know, where is it? Who's got it? And what's the score? If you repeat those three things continuously, people will always listen because that's all they want in the end. Yeah, right. And so that always, that always stood in my mind. 
There was another guy by the name of George Grilicic out of Western Australia in the Waffle over there who was an absolute superstar at calling whatever sport it was. And uh, he, was, he was a big help as well. I've had lots of help from the best people along the way. McAvaney, yeah. you know, towards the end of – not towards the end of my career, but in, in the television side of things. Wow, what a great person and coach he is. You know, he actually prefers – this is the opposite to commentators because we're all very selfish – he actually prefers that you call the big moment, that you have the most important part of the game, and he taps you on the back and he encourages you. Almost rubs your back. He gives you a back rub and says, "You know, you're going well, Brian. Oh, it's special." Uh, and and he just, um, you know, he's he's sort of weird, but he's great because he's so encouraging. I loved working with Bruce because he he knew when you needed a dash of confidence, yeah, and he knew when to inject that into you. And he knew when to laugh and he also knew when to pull you up and say, hey, don't reckon you should go there. You know, let's go in a different direction. And he was probably, in the end, the best hands-on coach while we were actually doing the job. This guy is one of the best commentators in the world. He's not the best commentator in Australia. He's one of the best commentators yeah. in the world. And, uh, you know, to hear him when he goes to the Olympic Games and, and you hear him at the races and all of that sort of stuff. He's, he's bloody amazing. His knowledge is incredible of stuff. He will arrive at a game of footy, McAvaney. He will arrive having done a week's worth of homework, all handwritten, nothing done on a computer, all handwritten. He cuts articles out of the paper and stips them in the book and he opens it up and it's this, you know, thesaurus of information. Absolutely incredible. But he will have maybe maybe 2,000 pieces of information about the game you're doing. Now, I arrived with about six pieces of information, right, because he's different to me. He's information-based. I'm emotion-based in, in what I call. But the thing that most amazes me about the 2,000 pieces of information that he brings along, all handwritten and pasted, is that he might only use 15 or 20 of them and he's prepared to throw out the rest. So all that toiling during the week... He's prepared to throw that away and not use it just because he wants to get the bits that fit the moment. And I think a lot of commentators today do that homework and they try and ram the 2,000 pieces down your throat and it annoys, it annoys me. And, but it is everyone is different. Some people need information. If I'm calling with an information-based caller, then I don't want to be supplying information. Mm. I just want to be supplying raw emotion that goes with a game. That's where I feel I do my my best work. I, I found that, like, just on personally, like, I was thinking about how I would prepare for a show and just, like, knowing what to say and where I want to take it. But then when the conversation flows, I find that's when I'm in my best. Yeah. Like, not even looking at the notes. Yeah. It's just, it's just in there. With Bruce, what's a memory that sticks out to you the most? Like, is there a part when you were just like, fuck me, I can't believe this, like, this is incredible? Like, is there a few times sitting in the box next to him, you're like, this is, this is special? Well, from a generosity point of view... I think the, the moment that sticks out most in my mind was when Richmond were about to win their first premiership since 1980 in 2017. And as a commentator, you call about 30 or 40 seconds each and then you tap the guy on the shoulder and it's yeah. his turn. Well, we're coming towards the end of the 2017 grand final and it was obvious that Richmond were going to win. McAvaney, it was about a minute to go in the game, McAvaney's calling and I'm thinking, shit, if he's calling now and we do 30 or 40... I'm going to be calling the last 20 seconds. And that's what every commentator's probably dream is, to want to call the last 20 seconds of grand final because that's the part that, that, that's the part that stays forever. Yeah. In 30 years' time when they show Richmond winning that premiership, it'll be the final siren and just that sentence that goes with Richmond winning. 
And I thought, shit, I don't know what, I don't know how to describe Richmond's, you know, 30 years of bloody being in the doldrums. So I quickly hit the button down to the, down to the truck, the broadcast truck down underneath the car park. And I said to our guy, or Bruce's guy, actually, Josh Kay, he's a wonderful person, best stats man I've ever met, got an incredible memory. And I said to Josh, look, I don't know what I'm going to, how I'm going to describe Richmond's last 30 years and they're going to win today. And he just quick, as quick as a flash, He's blurted out this line that just perfectly summed it up. I can't remember exactly what the line was, but he blurted out this line. And so I went with that line uh, because you only have 10 seconds once the siren goes to sum it up and then you've got to be quiet and let the emotion take over and let the pitchers tell the story. The Tigers are kings of the jungle again. It is Tiger time, Bruce. There is no doubt about it at all. It's the Tigers... And um, so that was probably probably the moment that I, I remember remember most, I, I would have thought. And it was such a simple line. Yeah. But when you're commentating a game, nothing comes simply, you know. And uh, so that was – you always need help. You'd be surprised how much of the information through a commentator at that level comes via the truck. Yeah. We have a lot of people sitting in the truck of which about four or five people can communicate with you. From the pitches, you know, the director will say, hey, Brian, I'm getting a picture of Gillan McLaughlin. And so he gives you that warning knowing that that pitch is coming. So you then have, you know, five or six words to tell wow. the people about Gil or what he's doing there or who he is or could be an actor. I think we had Damien Lillard uh, the other night on and we knew that was coming about five seconds before it came. And so you just say, well, who's he play for? Portland Trailblazers, bang, you know. So you're just prepared. I think that's one thing that, like, the general public and even myself wouldn't know how much work actually goes into calling a game. Like, mm. the team, the role. So, you've got, like, yep. two callers, you've got the supports. Like, what, how are these meetings, like, taking place? Is there specific roles? Like, or is it just commentating with the team over time you work out those sort of... You know, oh, you work it out to a certain degree. But there is... Yep. I'm going to go home today for tonight's game and yep. uh, I will um, I'll spend a good day having a look at that and know my stuff. Um, particularly with the stuff like roaming, the stuff that we do after the game, like... You know, walking in the rooms and I, number one, when you call, you call everyone's surnames. So Buckley gets the ball and heads up to the half forward flank, gives it over the top to Hurd, Hurd gives it to Danaher. You never mention their Christian names. Yeah. So all of a sudden you're down in the rooms and you're going, well, there's Buckley. <laughs> what the hell is his Christian name? I can't go up to him and say, hey, Buckley, yeah. kick three today. Well done, mate. Uh, you know, and so... You've got to go through all these Christian names. And, you know, that we had a, a new one last night. What was it? Um, I don't know, whoever it was. All these new names and that. And it's bloody – and I walk, I'm walking up to players often and I'm walking and I'm looking at you now and I'm yeah. thinking, I don't know who you are <laughs> but because your jumper's off and I don't – and people in my ears are saying, that's Dylan Buckley. Yeah. He kicked three today, Brian. Yeah. Right? So there's all this sort of information. I remember the day I went into St Kilda rooms and David Armitage was – he was injured and he was dressed in a suit and he'd done his hamstring a couple of weeks before and I'm do- walking around the rooms and um, I go up to him and say, oh, how would you enjoy the game? Great win today with the boys. When will you be back? He said, I'll be back next week. And I said, you must have enjoyed the footy. And he, he had three guys in suits standing next to him, all in St Kilda ties, obviously officials of the club. And and um, I later found out they were directors of his football club and he'd spent all day at the footy with them. And I said, well, introduce us to your three mates. He didn't know their names, right? Oh, no. And I'm thinking, oh, Jesus, I have embarrassed this guy oh. on national TV. So you've got to be 
you've got to be careful with stuff like that. <laughs> and then there's people in the room. So we go and interview, interview the crowd or the parents or, or supporters who get in the rooms. You've got to make sure they want to be on TV. And that's yeah. a hard thing to do when you don't have a chance to ask them. And there's, there's no producer working in front of me to say, hey, would you like to come on? So there's all these things. And then there's, there's officials, you know, do, do I know the name of the chairman? Do you know the names of the chairmen of the teams playing tonight? Do you know the CEOs? Because they're likely to be there. Um, do you know the name of the doctor? Um, just in case you, you may not get to interview him, but you may see him over the, There's Dr Greg Hickey from the Richmond Football Club. Have a look at him. He's looking blah, blah, blah. You know, so you, you need to know the name of all these ancillary people as well as the players. And last week on the, on the segment after the game, we went for 20 minutes. That's 20 minutes of me talking to myself, basically, on national TV. And you've got to fill that with something that matters. And it's, 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 it's not scary at the time, but when I, after I come back and think, Jesus, what happens if I didn't know his name? You know, or what happens if... Um, uh, Toby Nam Curvis says no to an interview. You know what? And we really like it. I like it when people say no. They haven't yeah. said no very often, but to me, that really interests me yeah. because the person at home would be thinking, what a dickhead that yeah. guy is. He couldn't give him 30 seconds. You know, I remember Joe Danaher, I went into, I was, you know, I was pushing into this room. And the door was slightly ajar and I could see Joe in there sitting on the floor and I just put my head in the door and he slammed the door on me, right? I thought, you asshole, Joe. <laughs> you know, what? I just wanted to say hello, mate. Um, and it's no big deal. So, And this is great because I watch Martin Brundle in the F1s these days do the grid yes. walk about 10 minutes before these jets take off and I watch him walk down pit lane. He's got a cameraman that can't keep up. He goes up to Tom Cruise and Tom Cruise says, piss off, mate, I'm not talking to you. Then he goes to the head of Ferrari, he can't speak English and so he can't speak. Then he goes over to some bird over here and, and says, you know, you know she's, a, she's an actor and she doesn't want to talk because she's, you know, hairs might get messed up or something. And, and he walks down the grid and you've watched 10 minutes. He hasn't interviewed one person. <laughs> He's had 35 knockbacks and you go, why am I still watching this? Why? Because the pictures tell the story yeah. about the people, whether he interviewed them or not. You are sitting at home. You are making your mind up about whether Tom Cruise is a good guy. Couldn't he have given him 10 seconds, you know? Um, and that is what's so compelling about it. And I look forward to the day that multiple players say no to me because that is going to be fantastic. Who, who have you enjoyed the most? Is there a player that you love interviewing? Um... I guess the ones that get it, like yeah. Joel Selwood, Tom Hawkins, these sort of guys, they, they sort of get it, you know. Um, but the rawness of the young players you can't beat because yeah. they're absolutely bedazzled by the, you know, this big light comes up and it bores a hole in their head. And they're thinking, Jesus, and I'm thinking, you know, this kid just he just doesn't know what to say. And then mum's over there and they're a bit embarrassed about mum and dad being over there in the cage and, you know, mum's yelling out, good on your son, and the, all the other <laughs> teammates are looking and going, Christ. Or they're looking at mum going, she, she's a good sort, yeah. you know. It's... <laughs> I must say the best one I've ever seen was when you went into, I think it was the Essendon Rooms and did the property steward and he was eating the sandwich. <laughs> yeah, you've got you to be a little bit careful because some of them aren't that media savvy. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's just good. And, and whether they can talk or not, 
in that case or whether they're eating it's sometimes it's just a glance or it's just the picture of the person that's important I, I don't pretend that what I'm going to ask them is is groundbreaking because it's not in fact no one would even listen to the question I think people at that stage have had enough of us talking and they're just interested for a bit of a walk Walking around around yeah and that's all we're trying to do so you know I, I don't understand why clubs are scared of this we're just going for a walk around and we're just showing the people the pictures of what happens in these rooms. Mm. And, uh, and really that's all about it. You know, we say to these clubs, hey, you can own. You can own this 15 minutes of TV. You tell us who you want us to talk to. You know, I'm sick of trying to get interviews out of you guys because you're so tight and you don't want any of your players to be interviewed because the, the big tough coaches are saying, don't do any media, don't go down media street. Well, all these kids can handle it. They're all bloody good at it. So, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's, it's a tough gig and... Out of all the things I do, it's the one thing that worries me the most. Lots of things can go wrong. You are on national live TV and people love to be able to say you've done a shit-house job. Do you follow social media? I do. I'm on Insta and Twitter. I'm yeah. not a big lover of Twitter, but I do like Insta. Yeah. It's a much more positive environment. Yeah. I found that I couldn't handle the negative Twitter, stuff. Twitter sucks. And I don't need... I just don't need the negative well, stuff. The reason Twitter is is so harsh, and it's the same as TikTok with the algorithm of it. Like, if you post, even people that don't follow you will see those things. So it goes into a feed. If you like footy, you'll see BT's tweets because then Seven yeah. FL will retweet it. And yeah. you attract people that don't necessarily want to see your stuff. That's yeah, why right. they comment on it. Yeah. But with Instagram, it's like you only really see it if you follow the person. Yeah, right. So it's such a better platform yeah. to be on. Yeah, yeah. Now I, I I don't mind that platform. I don't do a lot of it. Um, the podcast thing is, you know, you, you, yourself and Gorringe and, you know, Tommy Sheridan and all these other guys, I will listen to the people that appeal to me. You know, when yeah. I hear what who is being advertised coming on, I will listen to that. Um, who's the guy, the famous guy in the US that does a brilliant job um, linked to the – who is it? Um, Joe Rogan? Joe Rogan. Yeah. Like some of the stuff that he does is absolutely fantastic. Yeah. What have you listened yeah. to from him? Uh, I've listened to many things. Probably the mind. He had this the sleep mi- one. He had this mind coach. Yeah, he's talking about that sort of stuff, and I thought he was absolutely fantastic. But some of the guests he gets from behind the scenes, yeah, are absolutely incredible. That's what I love. I love the incredible stories yeah. that, that he gets. Like, yeah, some even of the- talking about the planet. You know, all the stuff. He's yeah, talking about the planet and that sort of thing. And you know, he's, he's amazing. We had um, Richard Harris yeah. who went to Thailand and did the caves. He got the 14 soccer oh, yeah. guys out of the cave. Like, and just sitting back and hearing that story for a yeah, yeah. half is unbelievable. Yeah. Um, just on your uh, your career, I know you, you, you don't like talking about yourself too much, but your favourite players to call, favourite like... I love players that, that can lose the game off their own boot yep. and can win the game off their own boot. No, who... who? Oh, well, so look, if, you, if I went back to Leon Davis, yep. I would say Leon is very capable of losing games for you, yep. but he's really capable of winning the odd game and that odd game is enough for me to stay attracted to everything he does. Jake Stringer, you know, is another one that will win or lose the game off his boot. He, he certainly appeals to me. So these guys with that little bit of X factor, that little bit of... Um, uh, you know, Arazio Fantasia yeah. would be another one. They can just cut a game open or they can play really bad and look terrible and everyone is giving them an absolute earful because they've played poorly. Well, to me, those are the guys that I, I go to the footy to watch. I don't go to the footy to watch a midfielder get 30 every week and at the end of the game you say, oh, you had 30 today. 
oh, there's nothing more boring than, <laughs> than that guy. Um, so if you're that guy out there, <laughs> don't do, do something else. Yeah, um, but, you know, these guys like, you know, Stringer, just powerful, just Leon Davis, just dazzling sort of skills. Um, like Toby? Toby Green, unbelievable to yeah. watch, you know, just a, an absolute force of just commitment and, and heaviness and every time he smashes India, it's look like he's breaking the rules, but, you know, he does it so well and he's, he's great to watch. So these guys with that X factor to me are really good. I'm also interested in a little bit in guys like maybe someone like Tom Hawkins, Jack Rewalt to a certain degree interested in those guys because they played in a position that I was in and how they kick the footy and that sort of thing. But no, it's, it's probably more a personality-based You know, thing. you mentioned like Orazio and, and Boy Oh Boy, like these sort of um, nuances that you come up with and you go in, in your commentary. Mm. How much is that is pre-planned versus how much just comes up when you're in your Well, zone? none of it. None Absolutely. Of it. Yeah. I can say honestly and openly here that I've never gone to a game saying I'm going to say this about that player. Yeah. I have never, ever done that. Other than facts about that player, I've never gone with a predetermined process. I remember on the Jake Stringer thing, I remember we were halfway through the game and I pressed the button to the intercom to my producer and I said, this guy, there's something about this guy that I really like. We've got to get this guy a nickname. (laughs) And someone in the truck yelled out the name. I didn't think of the name. Someone in the truck come back 30 seconds later and said, Package, or I can't remember what the first words were. Anyway, so that was that was done by someone in the truck, yeah. and that's how these things happen. I remember Leon Davis. I remember calling a game of footy on radio with Eddie McGuire, and it was Neon Leon. You know, he and and then we took that a, a step further. But so these things they really do just happen. They don't happen very often, and then when everyone jumps on board, when everyone jumps on board and likes it and is talking about it, it's time for you to jump off. Yeah. Do it before it gets old. Yeah, do it before it gets old. Move on to the next thing. Because if you get caught in the rut of going down the same old track of boy, oh boy, uh, uh, you know, a rising old fantasia, <laughs> if you are going down that track, you know, years later, you are in trouble. You have got to, in this world, continue to evolve, and especially in the cut and thrust of the footy industry, You've got to evolve and, and, and be relevant in every year that goes by. Otherwise, you know, particularly when you get to my age, people are looking at you as becoming an old dinosaur. I know oh. you're looking at me now thinking you are an old dinosaur. No, no, not at all. I, I couldn't agree more that I've had that same thing with, with the show myself. It's like if we continue to just yeah. do young footballs every week, yep. haven't, they've got the same fucking story. So yeah. like, it's very hard to have diversity in, yep. in that. So I couldn't agree more. Um, Favourite games that you've been a part of? Is there Just anything close games. I, I get so much criticism. People, I, I always laugh when people say, oh, you're barracking for the other team. Thinking, oh, I don't give a shit about the other team. You know, it's bloody Carlton. Who gives a crap about Carlton? You know, like, no, I, I am as a commentator barracking for the team that's coming second. Yep. If you're coming second in my game, then I need you to get the hell moving along because I, as a commentator, want a close finish. And I know you at home watching on TV or listening on the radio want a close finish as well. So all I hope is that it's close. So if that's barracking, yes, then I'm barracking. So for me, that's all I hope to get out of a game is is a close finish. And having done this for so long now, over 30 years, um, I'm not a a Collingwood or Richmond person because I've done so many games, Dylan. I, I do three... 
to four live games of footy every weekend. So it is I am I am seeing so much footy that I really don't care who wins. I just want a good, good game. game. Yeah. That's all I hope for. What are you thinking about footy at the moment? Is it exciting? Um, probably not as exciting as it should be right now. Um, it's just lacking. Number one, there are not enough good teams in the comp- – I'm not even sure that Melbourne are like an absolute brilliant team mm. at the moment. They're, they're acting like it and when I see them in press conference, I laugh at all the shit that comes out of their mouth at the moment. But I'm thinking, mate, you, you, you know Richmond, you know Hawthorne, you know Geelong yet. You've won one. And, you know, it's a quiet time in footy at the moment. You know, I see Danaher's back for Brisbane this weekend. So all of a sudden, McStay, Danaher and Hipwood all back playing footy. So in four weeks, they're going to be – I think they're going to yeah. be the strong team. But there's not enough of them. So beyond Brisbane and um, and Melbourne, there's not much else. And, and you know, we are talking just before off air about the stars, you know, the stars that we've known over the last decade are on the on the. They're getting older. Yeah. They're getting older. Like, dusty it, and the most exciting danger. player is still Buddy Franklin. He's yeah. only thirty five years old. And Buddy, we're still talking about these guys. We're not talking about the next year. Well, I did see a guy like Shea Bolton is oh, just he's unbelievable. He if he don't he will win the best and fairest at Richmond this year without any doubt if Dion Presti doesn't misses a few games. But um, he is. He is better than Dusty right now. He is better. He is more consistent. He's got all the tricks that Dusty's yeah. got and he looks like he gets involved in a lot of the big moments that Dusty has been famous for as well. I love Shea Bolton. I think he is unbelievably and incredibly, I think people are probably still underrating him. He is. I'm sure the people involved in the footy industry aren't, but I think the supporters are underrating how good this kid is. Yeah. No, I, I tend to agree. I think he's the silkiest player in the but, AFL by but far. But name another one. There's not. There, there are yeah, not really many. Not. Like the thing that show that really he's so long limbed, mm. like for his size, I think he's like one eighty three. But his arms, his reach, and his legs, he's very yeah. just elusive. I can't really name besides Isaac Kenny was playing really really well at the start of the year. Yeah, um, interesting player. Lockie Neal's playing some good footy. Yeah, Lockie's great player. I won't say. You know, yeah, it's hard. It's hard. To, it it really is hard to think of someone who's dominating the game at the moment. And it is it is those players you know that we're trying to you know Martin and. Buddy and these guys that bring people through the gates and, you know, we really go to watch them. We, we're happy for our team to win but we really want to see something incredible. And <clears throat> I think the game has become so professional and the coaches have become so good that they've got everyone playing so roles, consistently yeah. and roles that they just fill their role every week and we become attuned to that. And so, therefore, we don't see these spectacular outbursts of players because, you know, it is a little bit like basketball. A lot of these guys in teams today are playing roles rather than just being told to go out and get the footy as many times as you can. Yeah. Well, it goes back to our recruiting chat earlier. You get the most talented players in the game and then you tell them to stand and tell them what to do. Yeah. So there's got to be three or four, as much as I hated it when I was playing because I was never one of them, that just have a licence to so, do whatever they want. So... When does a coach give the player a licence, you know? How good do you have to be for the yeah. coach to say there are no restrictions on you, what you do? Well, to be honest, I, I always found that when I was playing, I don't think that ever things are really given out. Well, not publicly anyway in front of the team. But the best players are the ones that know the roles, but they don't care, and they back themselves in anyway. So yeah. someone like, for example, Lockie Whitfield and Sam Doherty, these sort of guys like – no matter what happens on the field, no matter what they're told, they do their thing yep. and they back themselves. Yep. Like 
we can go, you can be like, don't need a 45, don't do this, we want to play down the line. And Sam Doherty and Lockie Whitford, if there's something there, they just play they the game. And they're going to absolutely rip it. If yeah. they get sprayed, they don't care, they yeah. do it again, they do it again. So I think it actually comes down to the player. They've got to back themselves in a bit more to to do these things. Like I think the best players just back themselves mm. in, like Dusty Martin. He'll, he's not going to run back and defend. He'll just fucking run forward and kick yeah. a goal. Like that's yeah. what they do. Yeah. But we are so well drilled now. Yeah, they are. We, they are. Well coached, well drilled, as you say. Yeah. It's, it's hard to be different. Everyone's the same. Yeah, you've got to be different. Um, BT versus Brian Taylor. Perception versus reality. <laughs> From what we see on the screen and what we hear, and I want to say this to you now, I've said it on podcast a lot on this club, you are easily my favourite commentator. Like, I do say oh, that. You excite so. the game. I love listening to you call. I love it when you get excited because I'm on emotion too. I yep. don't want to hear about yeah. just stupid shit all yep. the time. I don't really care about stats that much. Yep. I just love close games. I love it going. But how... Similar is how you are on screen versus what you are in, in you know, just when you're by yourself. I your know family. one thing for sure. When I get home and I arrive home from a weekend of footy and my wife says, you know, who won today? I, I, my immediate response is, who played? Yeah. What game was I at? You tell me. Because I have moved on to the next round very, very quickly. So my family often say to me, we were just watching you on TV. You've just walked in the front door, but you are two different people. You know, like, who the hell are you when you walk in? <laughs> are you that guy there or are you this guy here, our dad or are you the husband or, you know, are you the guy that goes out and does the rock wall? Who the fuck are you? You know, like, it's weird. and Because um, Brian from, from reports is a Hansel-loving... Yes, I'm a dog-loving thing. Uh, got a little dog called Hansel. So that's what I care about most other than my yeah. family. <laughs> um, Hansel is probably part of the family. He's a bloody – I could just kiss him all day. <laughs> he's a he's a ripper and I'm very happy to clean up his shit. It yeah. doesn't worry me at all. It's just like dog shit. Who wants to do that? But I do. I love it. And, um, you know, I follow him, follow him around with a tray. Or you're, you're more, almost props in it. Um, <laughs> But uh, so I love the dog, and I love I'm a I'm a I'm a shed man. Yeah, so, you've got a great shed. Yeah, I love being in my shed. It's bigger than Bunnings. Yeah, it's good, and I just feel like you know I just get away and walk down there, and Tanya will say to me, "Where are you going?" I say, "I'm just going down the shed to do a job." But really, I'm just going down there for my quiet time. Yeah, you know, I need the time to myself, and I I might just fiddle with something and get nowhere, or I might actually achieve something, but. I'm heading down there because that's what I really enjoy, and I could go down there for six hours, and it feels like an hour I'm there. What do you What do you make? Like you're actually oh, handyman? Can you yeah, use I the could do anything. I mean, yep. you know, I've made wooden tables out of second, you know, all that sort of yep. stuff. I'm also I love the metal side of things as well. So, and and just repairing stuff that's broken around the place, mm. um, and and probably cultivating the, the gardens and lawns and driveways and all that sort of stuff. I do most jobs myself, regardless of how big they are. Being an ex-tradie as well sort of helps having some idea about most things. So I just, just love it. I just sit there. Sometimes I just go down there, put the glasses on and just read the paper or just have the radio on in the background yeah. or just sometimes I just sit there and do nothing. It's fantastic. The silence, Hansel, he just sits there next to me. He doesn't move and it's bloody brilliant you know i don't have anything to do i have very little to do with football when i'm not at the football yeah and i think you need i think i need to do that i need to refresh my brain and get out of the footy world and i i used to think it was important to consume 
and listen and read and watch everything that was footy. And I quickly learnt that through McAvaney that it's best not to be influenced by others. It's best to go to the footy with your opinion, not one you've heard on the radio in the week leading up or read in the newspaper. Go with your opinions. And that sometimes can leave you in a situation where you're vulnerable because you don't necessarily know what's happened with the chat on that and you haven't followed it. But I think you do go there with freshness and and different ideas about how you've seen something that's happened during the week. Yeah, yeah, big big uh, fan of switching off. I don't really watch any footy at whatsoever at the moment, especially. Yep. I love what you said about fixing up stuff and like wanting to get on hands. My biggest goal of twenty twenty two and twenty twenty three is to actually fucking learn how to do some things. Like, growing up in the city... Have you got any skill at all? I yeah. have literally zero skill, like, of anything. I tried to renovate my own house, like, a few years ago. Well, that's a big job. I mean, no, perhaps but you like, should I make a toy costing, or something first. It actually ended up costing me more because, like, <laughs> I fucked it all up and had to get someone to come and fix it. <laughs> I was driving home the other day from Swan Hill. My oil light popped on, went into the station to get the oil. I was like... I actually don't know how to fucking put the oil in. I had oh, to get the really? girl from the counter to come out and do it for me. You are. Uh, it's embarrassing. You are a bit basic. Yeah, I am. I definitely am. I need <laughs> to get into it. Um, down at Lawn, though, you're obviously you're pretty much the mayor of Lawn. Everyone nah. is. Well, you're, Mick, Mick Turner. Mick the Turner Mick and yourself. Turner. But I've heard that when you're down there on your paddleboard, you you want to get out of the way. You're mowing people down. Well, uh, <laughs> the surf area at Lawn's quite narrow. <laughs> yeah. The takeoff point. The takeoff point at Lawn Point. Yeah. Is like the size of a um, a very small tent. Yeah, it's not big, and there's fifty guys all looking for the same wave, all looking to get that spot at the same time. It's competitive, and they're all number one. They can all surf, so they're good. Um, and number two, they're on short little pissy boards that you know <laughs> they can manoeuvre and steer. I am on a eleven foot fiberglass, five inch thick fiberglass. Yeah. Yacht that doesn't even wobble, and when it and when a wa- when it feels the push of a wave, it just goes straight. Yeah. And what the surfers don't understand is, once I'm on, yeah. I can't turn. And so if you're in front of me, trying to what is it? What is it called? Fish tail you or something? Yeah. They in front of you. They duck there's, dive. There's some term they use where they. You know, they try to get the wave in front of you. Well, I can. I end up on their backs. <laughs> my skeg of my board is getting very close to their ass because I've gone over the top of them, and I'm about to split them in two. And um, so, some guys have learnt um, to stay out of the way once I'm on, which gives me a clear path. Yeah. But the the Christmas holiday makers don't know me, and um, and I go. I do remember one day at Lawn Point. And um, Mick Turner had told me, he said, look, the be- always the best way to, um, if you're having an argument, because I'm amazed at how aggressive surfing it's, is. It's, I had to stop doing it because it's, so, it's, it's, it's not actually relaxing for me. It's actually fucking scary it's out there. It's a fight every time yeah. you go out there. And it really, I, I've gone out there, I'm like you, I've gone out there to just yeah. clear my head because it is a sport where you think about nothing else other than what you're doing at yeah. the time because um, it requires that concentration. But, uh, you know, there was this guy out there who's a bloody lawyer or something and he was yelling at me and telling me to F off and, you know, get out of the way. Who do you think you are here with a stand-up paddleboard? You know, this, this, blah, 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 blah. And uh, anyway, he he comes up to me and he starts, you know, yelling at me and carrying on. So I jump off my board and he's off his board. And um, Mick Turner has always said to me, he said, you know, just, just uh, grab them in a bear hug, go down with them in the bear hug, <laughs> And when they come up, 
go down again quickly. <laughs> so you're ready for the two two downers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're only ready for one, right? And so you go down with them and then you go down again and they'll come up and then just go bang, <laughs> just punch them right in the nose. <laughs> and they will have no response because they've got no air left and they've got nothing. And I did do this once to this guy down there. <laughs> And, um, and then you wouldn't believe it. I was at my dentist about two weeks later. I'm sitting in the chair having a filling and the guy's going with the drill. And, um, and the bloody guy walks in from the, you know, the side and he's the accountant of my dentist. And it's the guy I punched in the nose oh down at the lawn point. So <laughs> Did you remember you? Uh, he remembered uh, yeah. me, absolutely. And I remembered him as well because I know him reasonably well. So uh, that was uh, that was a bit. But it's just so it's just so aggressive surfing. It's so aggressive, so aggressive. But it's so um, addictive because you know you, you can just feel yourself improve each time you each time you catch a wave. Yeah, I found that with golf now. Golf's yeah. my thing. Yeah, well, that, golf was my thing. I played golf four or five times a week. Really? What and, were you playing off? Well, I was playing off twelve in oh, the end shit. at Greenacres, and but I just found to play off 12 and be competitive at 12 you had to play three three yeah. or four times a week and then we had kids and they get in the way and they got to go to sport so you, you lose the time because it's a very selfish sport and you, you must be a very selfish guy I am you're down there <laughs> playing golf every day it's six hours down the drain yeah. every time you, you go but I loved golf and boy is that a challenge and you feel yourself getting marginally better you have a few lulls I've gone backwards at the moment yeah but that's, you do that it's, it's one of the biggest testing yeah. and, and it, it is purely as much as you want to win when you play it's the biggest test against yourself I've ever yeah. like played yeah. ever look if, you, if you're not going well and you're in a bit of a lull just you know just cheat yeah yeah, um, it's a good way to do it just get in the bushes well, and I'm at uh, up, which is in the oh, same yeah, across the river yeah across the yeah. river uh, yeah. nice little golf course Latrobe yeah good yeah. it's a bit underwater at the moment mm. um, the office Yes, the office down at Lawn. Yeah. Yeah. So, the, you know, the office for those people that don't know it, there's we have a little section of grass on the beach at Lawn and it's in under this very nice cool tree and we set up our chairs there um, over the Christmas period for about six or eight weeks and we, we meet, the group of us meet there. So Mick Turner, the yep. former Geelong, Geelong captain. Falcons, yeah. um, Rick Barham, the former wingman at yep. Collingwood. Jackson uh, Barham's dad. Jackson Barham's yep. dad. Uh, he will meet there as well and, and a couple of other mates and Steve Peary and a few others and, you know, we have a couple of spare chairs and the rule is <clears throat> that if you're in the office and I might be there, get there about eight in the morning and set up the chairs before anyone arrives. I don't know why we do that but we do. <laughs> and, um, you know, we're sitting there and Mick and I are talking to each other and, and sometimes we'll go there and not talk to each other and it's just a day off talk. Um, so when someone comes up and they want to talk, you know, they get the old... We don't want to talk today. But if someone arrives that you're not prepared to introduce to me, so if, if Mick's got a friend arriving and he's got to make the decision, if I introduce him to Brian, I can bring him in front of the chairs and we can invite him to sit down. But if he takes him to the back of the chairs, this is a non-introductory oh no. moment. Oh, no. This is... Move this fucking guy on. I do not want to talk to him. So this is what we've got sorted out. And so that's why it becomes interesting. But we've had trouble with the local council because we leave our chairs padlocked to the tree each night so we don't have to go the trouble of taking them down every day. And they keep coming and cutting the padlocks and and claiming the chairs. So we have to go and bail our chairs out of the local council office every second day because of this. But if you are ever walking past us... And you're not invited to, to the, the front, front of the chairs. Uh, please continue oh. on as quickly <laughs> as you can. So this is uh, this is part of the thing, and uh, people now know that we um, we're not rude, but 
it's it's our time. We don't necessarily have to be talking. Is it to just every like friend, just just a catch up club, like you and yeah, the boys? It's just friends getting down yeah. the beach. Um, you know, I love watching. You know, a group of people one day hide these kayaks right next to us, and there were six kayaks, and you could tell they'd never been in a kayak before. And this, and we're watching them from the start of them rolling up in the uh, in the Range Rover. To having weird-looking clothes on that don't resemble anything like bathers, but they're going to go out in the water anyway. And then they hire them, and you think, and they're asking questions like, you know, do, do these tip over? And you're going, well, most kayaks do, <laughs> um, but they don't seem to know that. And then put them in the water, and we noticed that none of them put the bung in. None of them put the oh, bung no. in for the canoes, and so they all went out. And there were six of them, and they went out, and they're out about a hundred meters, not that far, but none of them could swim. They all had life jackets on. And they all went out and they all filled up at the same time and they're all sinking at the same time, these six kayaks about 100 metres offshore. And it was uh, absolutely hilarious <laughs> until we realised that none of them could swim. Oh, and so geez. then everyone on mass has gone out to save them. Uh, Mick and I, we're still sitting down at this stage <laughs> and thinking they've got their life jackets on, they'll be okay. So, and, and just watching people, you know, the same people at places like Lawn and... I assume Portsea and Sorrento and all these other beaches, Y River, they can't, they go to the same place every year yeah. and they sit on the same bit of beach and it's fascinating to see the growth in their kids or or the growth in their body or, yeah. or whatever it is or the change in, in husband and wife. You know, often they switch over and they've got someone new that they bring along and to watch all of this over a... Well, for us, it's been about twenty years. Is amazing, and to see their kids grow from a two-year-old kid that was throwing sand in your face a few years back to this, you know, gun surfer or good-looking guy or girl or whatever it is, is is amazing. So we watch that. We can sit there and not say a word to each other, but know exactly what each other is thinking at the time. It is amazing. We'll see someone walk past, and I'll, I'll look at Mick and go, just a nod. And that's all it is. And we both are thinking exactly the same thing. And um, we do pull a lot of people to pieces, which we shouldn't, because um, that's unfair. But we do keep it very private. <laughs> I'm just nervous. The next time I'm down at Lawn, I'm literally. I won't if you even, walk I, past. I won't even, would I be coming to the back? No. Well, look, if you just walk past, number one, you will be analysed no okay, matter yeah, what. Yeah, yeah. Um, but if, if, if you come past, we could probably. I don't know whether you're a sit down guest, yeah. but. You can come to the front and we'll chat for a minute. Who's someone just off the top of your head that has had a sit-down? Oh, there's been many people that have had sit-downs. You know, Brian Cook's come past, okay. the, the CEO. So you've got to be a big knob. No, you don't have to be a big knob. Um, you know, I occasionally welcome my wife to sit down. Yeah. Um, she comes occasionally. Um, so there's, there's there have been all sorts of people through those seats. You know, uh, Mick knows the cotton-on people very well oh, yeah. uh, from down there. So. You know, we, we welcome them in. Um, but there's all sorts of backpackers, you know, a lot of backpackers around that we, we take um, we, we take a liking to one or two, you know, either an Argentinian or a Brazilian backpacker and uh, they will come down and join us and we'll sit there for an hour and talk to them, won't have a clue what they've said, but um, we eventually tell them to move on. But, uh, um, yeah, so it's, it's interesting. And, uh, you know, Ricky Barham's quite a smart guy. He doesn't... He sort of walks quickly past the back of our chairs with his dog as if he's going on a, a morning walk and he can't stop because, you know, his time will be affected or something. So he walks very, very – some people walk very quickly so they don't get caught in the net. <laughs> oh, my God, it's fantastic. It's a, it's a people-processing 
plant. Yeah, okay. Um, that we have, and uh, yeah, it's 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 interesting. We know everything about it, everyone. Well, I'm just excited there. to see what from this podcast what reception you get now when people see you down there if they've heard it. That's <laughs> yeah. what I'm nervous about for you. Yeah, look, it's it's great. You know, one interesting thing that we we do down there is we're not really connected to the footy club down there, the yeah. long, the local footy club. But we have this. We, we saw all these people on the beach, and we thought, how can we extract money out of these people? They've got nothing to do with lawn, other than they go there for a holiday. And how can we get that money out of them? And give it to the local footy club and netball club. And so we we organised this function down there that um, we basically dragged anyone that had any money off the beach, made them come to this function because we'd seen them over the years. We knew mm. everyone there, and we got them to come along this function, and they were incredibly um, uh, generous. In their support, you know, raising a hundred grand a year, wow. basically out of these people. So you're not drawing because the thing with local communities and local sporting clubs is the same people get hit all the time. You know, the ice cream shop gets hit for five hundred a year. You know, then they've got to go to the barbecue and buy ten. So you know, so we wanted to give the people of Lawn, that is the residents of Lawn, a rest. Let's get the money out of these people that aren't normally here, contribute to what they do, mm. and therefore. The local people in the club can can go to the club knowing that they can buy a raffle ticket because they're not going to be hit up for a three hundred dollar seat at this function. So it's it's something that we've enjoyed doing, and that came about by us sitting on the beach and one day going, "Hey, why don't we do this? We could get that guy over there. Him and his wife would love to come. He'd love to come. He's got some money there. He owns this, so he'll donate." And it was really good. Huge. Yeah, it's awesome. Mm. So good. What's uh, what's next for BT? What's goals? Um, anything? What do you want to achieve? Like you've done a lot. I, I want to achieve the perfect game of football, yeah. of which I've never done. I've never done as a caller. So what do you mean by like what? No mistakes. Well, not or? make a mistake. So identification for a start. You know, hard. I I, I I long for the day that I don't make an identification error. It's funny you say that. I'm not saying I actually really enjoy that because I think it humanizes the game as well. Sometimes when you're listening and it's just all, it's a bit of a blur. Like it actually breaks up the game and makes it fun. Yeah. What, I getting, love, getting I love wrong? It. I absolutely love it. Uh, yeah, it happens. I'll give you a bit of an idea of how, of where you can get to. So McAvaney, I reckon, watched him very closely and I reckon he would make maybe one identification error every three weeks. It's not much. He's pretty bloody good to get to that level. I reckon I make three or four a game mm. and... So to get to the McAvaney level is a really hard thing to do and that's what I look forward to one day, being able to say that I absolutely nailed every piece of information today. I didn't get a player wrong today. I'm not sure whether that day will ever come. It's harder to do than you think because some days you think you're going well and you put your binoculars down and someone over the other side mm. of the ground gets it and you don't even know you've made the mistake until you watch it back. By the way, I've never watched any games back but, yeah. I get it. I, I get what you're saying. I, I Get you strive for it, but do you think I, the players get pissed off when I don't we? Think anyone cares, cares at all? What I, do you think I, when they're the, sitting there and they're you know just because people are loudest? The loudest people doesn't mean it's it's like the majority. Yeah. You know, the minority is the loudest. I've always wondered what the players think that when they go to review a game. Do you do? You, do you don't with, listen with vision. You don't. Ever. You don't listen. Never. It's never. just vision. Is just it? Just vision. Really, you never ever listen to it. Okay, unless I, I do remember once actually. That we did listen to the vision because we we're playing, we we're getting beat by like ninety points, and they said something, and they played it out like it must have been. I think we lost, you know, ten in a row or something, and they put the vision. They just summed up saying, you know, this is disgusting. That was the only time we right. listened to the vision because I don't watch like when I was playing. I never watch footy back. Never yeah. listened to any calls. Yeah, I don't. The, the only time you hear it is when you watch the highlights. Yep. Yeah. 
So players, yeah, don't don't stress on that. And I was going to say with the um, people don't want you to be Bruce McAvaney. No, probably not. Like yeah. you're not Bruce. Point. Like yeah. you're BT. Yeah. So just like. So keep my life, that. what you're saying to me is my life is full of mistakes. Exactly. So it's keep full going. Of that. It's full of <laughs> kissing your dog on the lips, really. That's, that's your yeah, life. Yeah, that's, that's probably my life. Awesome. Hey, yeah. mate, honestly, um, incredible to get you on today. I really, really do appreciate it. Love your work. Um, and, yeah, just can't thank you enough for your time. Uh, good on you, Dill. Appreciate uh, being asked to come on and speak to young people. It's like speaking to my kids all over again. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. Thanks, mate. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Dylan Friends Podcast. If you liked the show, it'd be a massive help if you could like, follow, rate, leave a review, or even share with your friends. If you'd like to get in touch or suggest a guest or advertise with the Dylan Friends Podcast, please email us at inquiries at dylanfriends.com. Thanks so much for tuning in.